Y'all turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark 10, 35 through 45. We're continuing our series, The Man Who Changed Everything. And I have to make a confession to you. I'm one of those people who every year in March, I watch the Academy Awards every year. I watch it from beginning to end. Um, back when I had DVR, I'd DVR it and I'd go through the commercials and it made it faster. But uh, I, I know... I don't even see most of the movies. I still want to know who wins. And the thing is, I, I can rarely predict who's going to win from year to year. Usually if there's a movie I like, it's not going to win. Uh, but one thing I can predict with almost 100% certainty is the basic contents of every acceptance speech. Because when a person wins one of these awards, whether they're best actor, best director, best picture, best cinematography, you name it, they're going to get up and they're going to be gracious and they're going to be humble. And they're going to say things like, I want to thank, first of all, my director and my agent and my production company. And I want to thank my fellow cast members. And they're going to thank their makeup artist and the, the guy who sweeps up their, their trailer. And, and if they're really smart, they're going to thank their spouse. And then they're going to spend the rest of their time talking about how unworthy they are of this award. And they're going to say, you know, these people that were nominated alongside me, they're the real heroes. They're the real stars. I'm honored just to be named among them. And I just, I don't deserve this, but I'm grateful for it. And you like me. You really, really like me, right? And, and think about it for just a moment. If, if on some occasion at some award show, someone flipped the script and, and was very arrogant and entitled we would know about it. Even if we didn't watch the show, the very next day it would be headline news if someone got up and said, well, it's about time you talentless hacks recognized my greatness. I mean, this show is over from this point on. It's only going downhill, so I might as well just stay up here on stage so you can bask in the glow of my genius. If someone behaved that way, we would hate them forever. They would, we, would we would consider them classless. And my question is, where did that idea come from? I mean, this is a person who has just reached the top, and yet we want them to pretend to be humble. Where did we get this idea that class, that, that greatness means humility? Because we expect it in all areas of life. If someone achieves something great, they're supposed to deflect the compliments, aren't they? If they win a Super Bowl, if they, if they win in any athletic endeavor or entertainment or business, even in politics, although I've got news for you, after this election, don't expect graciousness or humility on either side. You can pretty much write that off. But where did we get this idea that greatness is humility? Because for most of human history, greatness was considered an insult. Greatness was the realm of the losers of life. It was something that was forced upon you, not something that one aspired to. And you won't be surprised to hear me say this, but that idea came from Jesus. Like so much else, he changed the world in terms of how we think of greatness. So let's start by reading our passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink, drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And let me just pause and say, this is not really the topic of the sermon, but I have to point out, the cup in Old Testament teaching and in, in Jewish thought will always refer to the wrath of God. And baptism, Jesus talked about being baptized with fire. And you get the impression that James and John didn't even hear what he had to say. Okay, whatever you say, Lord, whatever, you, whatever, whatever the criteria are, we're willing to go through it if we can gain this greatness. Jesus said to them, 
you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have to start by realizing that in the world Jesus lived in, everybody fell into a certain rank in society. And I know that's sort of true today. We, we have ranks. We have blue collar, white collar. We have people who live in subdivisions and people who live in trailer parks. And, and we, we rank people in various ways. But in Roman culture, the rankings were much more clearly defined. And so you had, for instance, on the bottom rung of society, you had slaves. And slaves, believe it or not, were the largest the largest group. There were more slaves than any other group in Roman culture. And to be a slave in Roman culture was very different than a slave in the United States 150, 200 years ago. Uh, It wasn't in Roman culture. It wasn't a race-based system. It wasn't nearly as unjust, although it was still a rough way to live. You had no rights. You could not choose for yourself where to live, what to do. You were at the bottom. You were a slave. Above slaves were the freedmen, To be a freedman meant you probably didn't have a lot of uh, cultural cachet. You probably didn't have a lot of money. You probably lived a difficult life. You had to work hard, but at least you were free. At least you had self-determination and self-agency. You could do what you wanted. Then above the freedmen were citizens of the empire. If you were a Roman citizen, like Paul, for instance, the only one of the apostles who was, if you were a Roman citizen, you had certain rights that most people didn't. For one, you could vote. For two, you could wear a toga. Yes, this was the right of a citizen of the kingdom. In fact, the only reason to wear a toga was to show people that you were a citizen. I've never worn one, but I'm told they're very impractical. You've got one arm covered, so you're basically one-handed. It's drafty in the winter. It's, it's, it's hot in the summer. Nobody really looks good in a toga, even a tailored one. So they would wear them just to show their status. Can you imagine a world in which people dressed in a certain way just to show how important they were? How weird is that, huh? Then above, that was a joke. Come on, y'all got to keep with me. (laughs) Above that level, above above the citizens of the kingdom were the the top 2% of society. and, And those were called equestrians. That was the nobility in Roman society. They were called equestrians because in those days, they were the ones who could afford a horse. They had a mode of transportation. They weren't walking, they were riding. Again, can you imagine a society in which we like to show off our status because of our mode of transportation? Can you imagine that? Okay, now you're with me. I like that. Above, above the equestrians were the senators. There were about 600 senators in all the Roman Empire. And right on top of the senators at the very top of the pyramid was Caesar himself. And if you were a ruler in that world, whether Rome or one of their client kingdoms, then you were at the top. But even that wasn't enough. You had to bolster your reputation. And you did that in several ways. You did it by by commissioning statues of yourself, by writing works. This is the actual title of, of a book that was written around the time of Jesus. It's The Achievements of the Divine Augustus, written by 
Augustus, that's right. You, you took honorific titles for yourself. You ever heard of Herod the Great? See, we, we can't imagine a world in which our politicians do that exactly. Can you imagine getting a publication in the mail this week and one of them's from Hillary Clinton, the Magnificent, and the other one's from Donald Trump, the hugely successful? I mean, it's, it's, we, would, we would laugh to no end because we don't expect that, but that was expected back then. And this whole system was known as the cursus honorum, which is Latin for the race for honors. Everyone was part of the race for honors. If you were a slave, you wanted to earn your freedom and become a freedman. If you were a freedman, you wanted to earn your citizenship so you could wear that toga and vote in the next election. If you were a citizen, you wanted to become noble so you could ride a horse. Everybody was trying to up their level in society, not just so they could raise their kids in a better neighborhood, so they could be seen as important. And guess what? If you want to promote yourself, if you want to go up the race, up the ladder in the race for honors, you don't do that by serving others. You do that by using other people. And so much of Jesus' teaching is attacking that system, that mode of thinking. And we see it right here when James and John go up to Jesus and they say, Lord, we want to be at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. What are they saying? Are they saying, Lord, we'll go with you wherever you tell us. We're, we want to be your most faithful servants because we believe in your mission. No, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, Lord, we believe you're the Messiah God promised in the Torah. We believe that someday you're going to claim the kingdom of Israel and you're going to make Israel great again and Israel's going to conquer Rome and then we're going to be the, the pinnacle of society and, and it'll be like in the days of Solomon when every Israelite had a nice, beautiful house and everyone lived in splendor and, and glory. And right now things are rough, but Lord, if, if we're your right and left-hand man right now, then when you come into your kingdom, we'll be number two and number three in the world. James and John were playing the race for honors right here in the Bible. And you know why the disciples, why the ten were so angry at them for this? Because they didn't think of that first. They were angry because they're like those stupid sons of Zebedee. They're getting ahead of us. How dare they? And guess what Jesus says? He says, listen, everybody's part of the race for honors except me. And if you want to follow me, you're going to drop out of the race for honors too. He paints a picture. He says, listen, the Gentiles, by the way, raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Any Gentiles in here? Yeah, I thought so. You probably should have raised your hand. Jesus says Gentiles love the race for honors. They love to lord it over others when they are in a position of authority over them. But then he says these very crucial words, not so with you. If you want to follow me, you're going to drop out of the race for honors. If you want to go in the race for honors, you can't follow me. You have to make a choice. Because where I'm leading leads to humility. Where I'm leading is where you say, I don't want to be Caesar. I want to be a slave. He literally said, you must become a slave of all if you want to become great. That had to boggle the minds of the disciples. And in fact, I know it did because he has to repeat it to them several different times. If you read all four Gospels, and read how many times Jesus teaches on humility. In fact, this same scenario replays itself over at least two or three other times. And Jesus has to tell the same story and, and give the same teaching in different terms. At one point, he did it this way. He didn't say you have to be a slave. In this case, he said he brought a little child and had him stand in the midst of them, this little five or six-year-old boy. And he says, if you want to be great, be like this child. 
And we hear that and we sort of overly romanticize it and we hear it and we think, oh, well, that means that I have to become childlike in my wonder and in my faith and I have to lose all my cynicism and skepticism and, and, and self-awareness. And that's not what Jesus was saying. See, we, we don't understand this, but in that culture, children had even fewer rights than slaves. Children weren't even considered fully human yet. They were, they were sort of like pets until they reached a certain age. In fact, you'll find this interesting if you're the parent of a young child or an elementary school teacher. The word for child in Greek and in Latin literally means not speaking. How do you like that? Children are to be seen and not heard. Jesus was different. O.M. Backey is a historian he has written a book with a great title. The title is, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood and Early Christianity. When Children Became People. His point, the point of his work is that Jesus is the reason that today we see children as special, that we see them as important. Now, I don't, don't get me wrong. Parents back then loved their children, but as a society, they did not esteem childhood. They did not look on childhood as a special time. They didn't invest in children. There weren't public schools. There weren't laws against abuse of children. All of that that we see today where we look upon children and we sentimentalize that time period is because of Jesus, because he said, a child is the greatest. Treat a child the way he should, the way you should. Raise him up. And, and, and bless him. And if you cause one of these to stumble, I will, it'll, it'll be better for you to be thrown into the water with a millstone tied around your neck. So Jesus says to these disciples, become like this child. In essence, he's saying, give up all your rights. Give up all your, your uh, notions that people need to respect me. Give up this sense that I have to advocate for myself. Basically what the world tells us is necessary for success. Jesus says that's exactly what's getting in the way of you becoming great. What Jesus is talking about here is intentionally losing. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to succeed in academics or, or business or athletics. It means that our ultimate goal, even in our success, is to bless others, is to glorify God. And Jesus didn't just say these things. He actually lived them. I want you to consider for just a moment the circumstances of Jesus' life. He was born in poverty. Scriptures tell us that when his parents went to dedicate him before the Lord in the temple, which every Jewish parent did, that they brought two pigeons. They didn't even have enough money to bring a lamb. God had made provision in his word for people who were too poor to offer a lamb. He said, okay, just bring two birds instead. Jesus' dad was a blue-collar man. He, he grew up around that kind of lifestyle. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Do you know what Nazareth was? Nazareth was the, the dog patch, the bug tussle of Israel. Literally, people had a saying back then, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that was where Jesus grew up. Jesus' parents were unmarried when he was conceived. Now, we know through the scriptures that, that that was because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit conceived the child inside Mary. There was no sexual intercourse involved, and yet the people of his community didn't know that. There's a word in Hebrew that is used, basically a word in every language for a child who's conceived when his parents aren't married. In Hebrew, the word is mamzer, M-A-M-Z-E-R. We don't have any record in the scriptures of Jesus being called that name. 
But we can be sure it happened because people are people. And guess what? Mamzer is not any more complimentary than the term that is used in English for that kind of person. Jesus worked as a carpenter. Do you know that in the ancient world, a person who, as, who aspired to greatness would never be caught working with their hands? I find it interesting that in our world, politicians who are running for office always want to be seen as a man or woman of the people. So they'll be photographed walking through a, a, a factory with a hard hat on, or they'll be videotaped out in a pasture digging, you know, digging a hole to plant a fence post or something, even though, even though neither of the candidates has ever worked a real day in their life. They want to appear as a hardworking person, and that's very different than the ancient world. In the ancient world, greatness was you have others to do those things for you. And yet Jesus only preached for three years, for most of his life, the better part of his life, 30-plus years, he spent that time not working, not doing miracles, not teaching, but building things for people who were higher up the social ladder than he was. In those days, if you were a man who wanted to be seen as great, you cared greatly about your appearance. You wanted people to think you were handsome and strong. Again, not so different from today. Think about the statues you've probably seen of Julius Caesar. Let me ask you a question. Do you really think that in the days before nutritional supplements and weight training that Caesar had that body? Do you really think he had those pecs and those abs? I don't think so. I think that's the way Caesar wanted us to perceive him. That's the first century version of Photoshop that you see there. We don't have any statues or pictures of Jesus from the time in which he lived. Everything we see, every, art, every artistic representation of Jesus we see now is something that someone made up who never really saw him. We only have one, so we really don't know what Jesus looked like. We only have one physical description of Jesus in all the Bible. Do you know that? He's not described physically in any of the Gospels, but he is described in the book of Isaiah by the prophet. And here is the one physical description of Jesus in the Bible. It says... He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isn't it interesting that the only physical description of Jesus in the whole Bible tells us that he wasn't attractive? So I don't know how you picture Jesus in your mind, but I'd be willing to bet that it's a lot more handsome than he actually was. Now, why does all this matter? Why am I talking about this? Because Jesus, according to Scripture, was God in human flesh. That means that Jesus is the only person in all of history who is actually able to choose the circumstances of his birth. He chose where he was born. He chose who his parents were. He chose what he would look like. He chose everything about himself. And in every case, he chose the bottom. He chose to be the least. The night before Jesus died, he did something amazing. He, he was having a Passover supper with his disciples, and right in the middle of this ancient ritual, he did something new. He got up, and he took off his tunic, which basically means he stripped down to his underwear. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He got on his hands and knees with a basin and washed their feet. Now, I don't know about you, I don't really have any desire to have someone rubbing on my feet, and I don't want to do that for someone else, but that's just because of ickiness issues. Back then, there was a very, very definite social statement being made there, because foot washing was seen as the lowest duty one could do. Even slaves could not be compelled to wash someone's feet. Jesus 
did it voluntarily. Imagine you were in the hospital and you woke up one morning and you saw the President of the United States emptying your bedpan for you. This is, this is the shock that the disciples had when they saw Jesus washing their feet. And then the next day, he died. He didn't just die, he died on a cross. There were a lot of ways to die in the ancient world, a lot of ways to be executed. They saved crucifixion for the worst of the worst. In fact, they saved crucifixion only for slaves. A Roman citizen could not be crucified no matter how dire their crimes. It was that demeaning to be crucified. And, and none of our artistic representations today can really capture that. I mean, I, I love the movie The Passion of the Christ. I thought, I thought the, the filmmakers did an excellent job. But even there, Jesus is depicted as wearing a loincloth. In real life, we know that people were crucified with nothing. The point was not just to kill them as painfully and slowly as possible. The point was to take away their dignity, to take away their self-respect. No one who was crucified in that world was seen as a martyr or a hero. They were always seen as someone who was, who was utterly defeated. In, in Jewish thought, the, the Old Testament said in Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. Meanwhile, to, to Romans, the cross was seen as the ultimate sign that you were unsuccessful, that you were unworthy of our consideration. And yet Jesus chose that too. He said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. He chose to live like a slave. He chose to die like a slave. And then an amazing thing happened. And I'm not just talking about the resurrection. That's amazing, of course. The amazing thing is that Jesus' followers and those who came into his kingdom began to get that message of dropping out of the race for honors. They had never really gotten it while he was still alive, but now that he was gone and the Holy Spirit had come, they began to understand and they began to embrace that message. And we see it in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul, the, probably the smartest of all the apostles, certainly the most prolific in terms of his writing, he never calls himself in his writings Paul the Great or Paul the Prolific, or Paul the Wise, or Paul the Righteous. He rarely even calls himself an apostle. He usually calls himself Paul the Slave of Jesus Christ. The book of James is another example. James was the brother of Jesus. I have one brother. He's four years younger than me and six inches taller than me. Talk about humility right there. And I love my brother. I, I hope I get to see him today. I'm planning to go see my parents, and I hope he's going to be there I love my brother, but you can bet on this. I'm not his slave. And yet James, at the start of his letter, he, he calls himself James, the slave of Christ Jesus, the slave of my brother. You want to hear a, a proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ? It is the man who lived his whole life as his younger brother looks up to him now and says, that's the one I worship. Not only that, not only that, but the, the early church began to embrace the cross as their symbol. Now, we think of the cross as a piece of jewelry. We think of the cross as a piece of, uh, of decoration on a church or on a steeple. Uh, maybe even on the walls of your house, you might have an ornately colored uh, decor decorative cross. It's very beautiful. In that time, crosses were not beautiful. A cross was the ugliest thing you can imagine. It was a means of, of horrible execution, and, and it was a symbol of defeat. So for the Christians, the early believers in Jesus, to walk around saying, yes, we believe in the cross, went against everything the world said. It was, it was an outward rejection of the race for honors. 
And so, for instance, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The very thing that, that chased off both Jews and Greeks was the very thing that gave believers in Jesus strength. And we still believe in it today. We cherish the old rugged cross because at the cross, at the cross, we first saw the light and the burden of our heart rolled away. And the way of the cross leads home. You know, to this day, there are still cultures that are ruled by the sense of honor and shame. And greatness is to, is to be honored and, and, and to be humiliated is to be defeated. In those cultures, you may have heard of, of stories of, of women being killed in what they call honor killings. This is a case where a husband or a father or a brother will kill a young woman and his family because she has disgraced the family in some way. So blood kills blood. And they can call that an honor killing. You'll note that those kinds of things don't happen in the cultures that were shaped by the movement of Jesus. And yet even here in America, we're still part of the race for honors, aren't we? We may say we value humility and we look up to people who, who have that sense of graciousness and yet, and yet our whole system is set up differently. There's a website, at least it used to be, I haven't checked on it, but a few years ago there was a website called beautifulpeople.com. I don't recommend you go there. It's a dating site for physically attractive people. Not that you're not attractive, but here's how you get on. Here's how, here's how you become part of this system. You send them pictures, they post them publicly, and the members of beautifulpeople.com have to vote whether you're beautiful enough to join their site. And they made news a few years ago because 5,000 members were expelled for gaining weight over the holidays. The founder of beautifulpeople.com, and by the way, I did not submit pictures, just so you know. I have no idea if I'd make it. If you submit my pictures for me, we're not friends anymore. I'm just saying. The the founder of beautifulpeople.com said, is it elitist? Yes, we are, because that's what our members desire. And if we're honest... We all have some area of our lives where we want to feel like we're better than others, where we want to put some distance between us and those we see as our inferiors. And it may not be your physical appearance. It may be your intelligence. It may be your education. It may be your work ethic. It may be your church attendance and your religiosity. It may be your morality. In some way, there's some group we like to look down on. It may be your politics. But we want some distance between us and those who don't rise to our level. And yet Jesus says, no, we go to the bottom and serve those around us. That's greatness. So how do we know how we're doing on this? You know, it's really not something where you can just say, well, I think I'm pretty humble. I got news for you. If you think you're humble, you're not. It's one of those paradoxical things. Humility is like a watermelon seed. Once you think you got your thumb on it, it squirts out. So let me, let me give you four questions you can use to, to test yourself on this. Question number one, how do I treat people who are lower in status than me? And I say lower in quotes. How do I treat people who are there to serve me? If you're an employer, I get it. I get it. You have to be tough. You have to, you have to maintain certain standards. Sometimes you have to discipline workers. Sometimes you have to fire workers. That's true, whether you're a Christian or not. But do you treat them with dignity? Do you treat them as people? Do you, are they better for having known you? How about the rest of us who don't manage others? How, about, how, do we treat, how do we treat people who serve us in other ways? How do we treat 
the waitress or waiter at the restaurant? How do we treat uh, the person who cuts our hair? How do we treat the person who teaches our children or coaches them in Little League? How do we treat, how do we treat telemarketers? Yeah. Question number two, how often do I serve someone else? How often do I serve someone else? Jesus created a revolution in his world because in those days, uh, men were seen as the owners of their wives. Wives were seen as property to their husbands. And Jesus came along, and after him, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, Love your wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the early teach, the teachings of the Christians was that it, a husband's primary job is to serve his wife and to meet her needs and to recognize her as the, as the wonderful gift of God and creation of God that she is and do everything he can to help her live out her full potential in God's plan. And that's revolutionary. And God has that desire for all of us, single and married, and how we relate to others. Ask ourselves the question, when's the last time I did something for someone else without asking anything in return? When's the last time I helped someone and didn't draw attention to it, didn't tell anybody about it? How often do I serve others? That's an easy one to do. You can intentionally do that today. Number three, how do I react when someone disagrees with me? How do I react when someone expresses an, a viewpoint that I don't agree with? I'm not saying that we just give in or, or agree with them. They, sometimes they are wrong. Sometimes we are right. But here's the thing. I said it last week. I don't know that anybody's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. I'm pretty doggone sure nobody's ever been insulted into salvation. And we live in a culture where it's all about winning the argument. And what Jesus would say is, even if you know you're right, and even if you know they're wrong, listen, treat them with respect. You cannot insult them and persuade them at the same time. So choose to persuade. Choose to see them as valuable. Choose to understand the only way to win them over is to love them. Question number four, how badly do I want humility? How badly do I want to be humble? How often do you pray and say, Lord, humble me. Lord, show me how to see myself the way you do. Because remember, humility isn't seeing yourself as being a lousy person. That's, self, that's poor self-esteem, and that's nowhere advocated in the Scriptures. I've heard it said this way. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humble people recognize their own gifts and their own abilities. They just don't think about it that much. They just go out and serve others. And that's what, the way we're supposed to be. How often do you pray for God to teach you that? I can't think of a more important virtue for a follower of Jesus to learn than the virtue of humility. And I got news for you. You can't make yourself become humble. You can't force yourself to, to take on this character. Only the crucified Savior can make us this way. So let's ask him for that help right now.